This has come to the table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY dash giving. Matthew chapter 11. We didn't get very far in this, and we had, we'd gotten, we ended right at a spot where things started to get really interesting. So we're going to go back to the beginning of that particular thought, and we'll dig into it. Now, if you'll remember, in our study last week, the disciples of John the Baptist had come to inquire of Jesus at John's request. John was trying to verify, and we don't really know why he, he needed to. Because he had been there at Jesus' baptism. He had been present at other things. But in the years that, or in the, in the time, in the intervening time between Jesus' baptism and this point in time, John, in his humility, and we may end up saying this again in tonight's study, John, in his humility, recognized the need for him and his own ministry to recede and make room for the ministry of Messiah now that Messiah was on the scene. And so, uh, whatever all have, might have taken place, for whatever reason, there was a doubt there. So he had sent his disciples to Jesus, and Jesus answered them by pointing to his own works, by pointing to his works as proof of who he was. And then he sent them back with that. And then, right afterwards, because there was a multitude gathered there at that encounter, right after he sends John's disciples back to him with his answer... Then he begins to deal with the people. And he begins to back up John. He begins to back up John. He talks to the crowd, takes them to task a little bit, and asks them a series of questions. He begins to ask them, those that had had experience as being disciples of John the Baptist first, because we don't know exactly how long John was active before Jesus came on the scene. But he, was, he had been active for some time, long enough to gain a significant following. And so he begins to ask him the series of questions. He asks them, well, why did, you go, why did you go out? What did you go out into the wilderness to see? And he asked them, was it a reed shaken by the wind? Or what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Or did you go out to see a prophet? He asked them these questions, and you can, you can see kind of how they tie into, did you go out to see a show? Did you go out to be entertained? Did you go out to see some miracles? Did you go out to see somebody who was clothed in nice clothing? And he really sort of, while it's not a harsh rebuke, there's a corrective tone in Jesus' words. It's not hard to read a corrective tone in his words. And then he would, the last thing that he mentions is, did you go out to see a prophet? And then he says, yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet, more than a prophet, Verse 10, he says, For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. This was Jesus revealing that the advent of John the Baptist had been foretold by the prophet Malachi. And if you want to, you know what, let's jump over there. Let's go to Malachi chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, where the prophet says, the Word of God, 
the words of God by the mouth of the prophet, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in, behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. So this was a prophecy all the way back in the days of Malachi, which had been a good 400 plus years before the days of Christ. This was at least 400 years before Christ arrived on the scene. And so he says right here, For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Well, who exactly is he talking to here in this prophecy? Well, this is the Father. This is God the Father in counsel with God the Son, long before he was ever born by Mary. Long before he was ever born of Mary. Look at the wording here. It's all in the language. He says, I send my messenger before thy face, who shall, which shall prepare thy way before thee. He wasn't talking to the people. I'm going to send my messenger before your face, Israel. He wasn't saying that. He was saying, I'm going to send my messenger before your face, Messiah, who will prepare your way before you. John was the harbinger of Jesus not the harbinger of the people. John was the foremessenger of Jesus, not the foremessenger of the people. And so this was a fulfilling of that prophecy. And there's a little bit more prophecy to be fulfilled here in the verses that follow. We'll get into that in a moment. So this was God the Father in counsel with the Son because God is Elohim. It's a uniplural word. It speaks of more than one in one. We go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 right there when you're talking about that. He says, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. And so he was saying, next verse he says, Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. All right, well, that almost sounds like he's demoting John a little bit, but that really isn't what Jesus was saying here. He was saying that it is better to be in the kingdom of heaven in any capacity at all than to be on the earth in her current state and in our current state. And we can actually break that down. We can, we can, we can analyze this even a little bit further if we want to. Because to be in the kingdom of heaven is to be completely free from all of our earthly limitations, all of our earthly shortcomings, all of, uh, all of the sin that the Bible says so easily besets us, even whether or not we, we, uh, whether or not we uh, succumb to it or not, it still comes against us, doesn't it? The sins of others come against us. Uh, the temptations of the flesh come against us, and, and, and we have to resist that. We've been talking about that a lot recently. Resisting the devil so that he'll flee. Resisting temptation so you can starve it into dormancy and even into death. Did you know that if you've ever tried that, if you've ever really just set your mind uh, to, like a flint to just resist something that used to overtake you at will, to just resist it and never again give in to it, whether it was anger, whether it was lust, whether it was pride, whatever the case may be. Whether it was a temptation to just do something silly or foolish or dumb. But you resolved, 
I'm not going to fall for that again. I'm not going to let the devil sucker punch me again. And you set yourself to resist it and did not back down for any reason at all, ever. Ever again. And at first, that temptation inflamed. And it grew harder to resist, but you still resisted it. You still resisted it. And then it began to back down as you continued to resist. As you continued to starve it of its strength. Because sin is like addiction, isn't it? It's like any addictive substance. The more you succumb to it, one, the more you strengthen it, and two, the more you lessen its reward, right? It's that law of diminishing returns that also comes with addiction to substances. It's the same thing with sin. You give into the sin over and over and over again, and it takes more of that same sin to get you to get you the same return or the same buzz or whatever. And that's why a lot of people burn out on those sins. And sometimes that works very much to our favor. I'm not saying go sin to your heart's content so that you burn it out. I'm not saying that at all. Please, oh my goodness, don't misunderstand me there. But sometimes it has that effect, and and someone just gets absolutely gut sick of it, and they don't ever want to they don't ever want to partake of that particular crime against God again. But you did that, and and it diminished its power, and it diminished its hold on you until it died in you, and it had no power in you at all. Well, all right, now the other trick that the devil tries to pull is once you've reached that point, he tries to get you to think that now you can handle it, and he tries to bring it by your way again. Well, don't fall for that either. Don't fall for that either, okay? Any hit of heroin is a bad hit, all right, whether it feels good or not. And I'm using that as a metaphor. Well, any trip into any trip into sin is a bad trip. Doesn't matter whether it's pleasurable or not. Just stay away from it. And stay away from it forever. But he says here that he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. Well, how is that possible? Well, anybody in the kingdom of heaven is going to be greater than anybody here on earth because they're not going to be subject to human limitations, human failings, human shortcomings, or human sins. And so he wasn't demoting John. He was just making it clear that it's better to be there than to be here. Now, we don't take that to an extreme either. All right, well, let's all go drink the Kool-Aid that we may be home with our Lord. No, suicide is self-murder. And that's just not going to lead you to any place good. And so we'll leave that at that. Let's move on. And then he says in verse 12, Let's read the complete thought. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. Okay, now that's one that trips some people up. Okay, that sounds really dramatic. Like, mm, yeah, I like that. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. Yeah, I want to be violent because that means that I can take heaven. Or I don't really know what that means, but that sounds really good and it'd make a good t-shirt. And so they go buy one because I'm sure you can find one with that on there. The religious t-shirts are not hard to find. But there's, there's a specific message that's in this though. He didn't just, he didn't just say this for no reason. Jesus was not about drama. He really wasn't just about drama. He wasn't trying to be dramatic. Everything that he said, like Paul the Apostle, or Paul the Apostle like him, I should say, Paul the Apostle like Jesus, everything that Jesus said meant something. It was not idle. It wasn't just 
this sounds cool, so I'm going to throw it out there and maybe it'll stick. And then maybe I'll write a motivational book or something about business and make a million dollars off of it. That wasn't Jesus' motive. He says, from the days of John the Baptist until now. Well, now in Jesus' time was at that moment, okay? From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. Now, I want to park here for a few minutes if I can, because... We don't do a whole lot of meditating on the ministry of John, do we? We don't think about it much at all. As far as in our Christian experience and what we open our minds up, uh, what we open up our minds up to meditate on and think on and to learn about, John's ministry is just kind of a blip on the radar, isn't it? We, we read about John, we read about him baptizing some people, and about all that we really think about John is he wore rough clothes, he ate wild locusts and honey, or Locusts and wild honey. There, there you go. I think all locusts are wild. I don't, don't know of any that have been domesticated or tamed. Okay, they're just locusts. They come in and destroy. Kind of like invasive Muslim immigration. Yes, I went there. I said that, but it happens. They come in like locusts and they devour everything in their path and they leave nothing behind except ruin. Uh, well, we don't think a whole lot about John's ministry because it was comparatively short. Well, Jesus was, uh, may have been even shorter but had the greater impact. But John's ministry is still worth considering. It wasn't just an afterthought on the part of God. John wasn't just the forerunner of Christ. He had a specific message that he told the people. And he was the first, uh, he was the first on the scene with this kind of a message. Now, there had been many prophets before him all throughout Israel's history. Sure, there had been prophets before him that had come on the scene with various messages, some acute, some more, um, some more broad, some more prophetic, some more long-term, some short-term. The prophets weren't all the same. These were men that had been trained or had been taught or had learned how to hear the voice of God, and so they carried God's message, particular message, to whichever people he sent them to. And it wasn't always the Jews. A lot of times, or sometimes, it was to Gentiles as well. We've read about Jonah. Jonah was sent to a Gentile nation to command them to repent or die. And he didn't want to carry that message. He was a strong, self-willed man, and God had to get his attention. And it, was, and it took drastic measures. But whatever messages came from the prophets in days before John the Baptist, John the Baptist came on the scene saying, Repent. Now, other prophets had said that before, but he was the first one who said, Repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was the first one with that message. He was the first one saying, The kingdom of heaven is like at the threshold of where we are. So you need to repent, people, he was telling them. You need to turn your back on your sins. You need to turn your hearts again to God. Because when John came on the scene, he came on the scene to a broken people. They were occupied by Rome. They'd been demoralized for generations ever since Babylon had come and taken them into captivity. That's something we've talked a lot about also. But he came with a message you could say it was a message of hope. It was a message, it was a message of action. He was saying, repent, turn from your sins, change your ways, turn your hearts again to God. But then he said, why? And the why was a message of hope. And it was a message of hope that wasn't someday the kingdom of heaven will be at hand, but it was a message of the kingdom of heaven is like right here. 
It's, it's verily, it is practically at the door and knocking. And so there's no more time to lose. That's what John was saying. Before him, no one had come on the scene preaching that kind of a message. And so John's disciples, John's disciples, those who had brought themselves under the discipline of the teachings of John the Baptist, John's disciples were the very first contenders for that kingdom. Think about it now. What had Israel been throughout its history before John, before Jesus? Really before Babylon, let's just put it that way. God had, God had created the nation of Israel through a series of miraculous deliverances. Let's go all the way back to Egypt now, shall we? And they didn't begin in Egypt. They began with Abraham, but Abraham was not uh, Abraham wasn't a Hebrew. There were no Hebrews back then. They hadn't emerged as a people yet. Abraham was a Chaldean Gentile. And as a Chaldean Gentile, he answered the call of God, came out of Ur of the Chaldees, his home country. He, he, he heard the voice of God and obeyed it, obeyed it. And he went into a land that God was going to give to his seed forever as an inheritance. So he went there, went there with some family. Uh, that didn't work out too well. Uh, we know how well that worked out. Well, maybe we'll get to more of that another time. Or that's for another study. But he went there. And then God gave him the son that he promised him. And then provided a, provided a wife for his son back among the Gentiles. Because again, the Jews or the, the Hebrews as a people did not exist yet. They were just coming into existence by way of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob. And then, then the twelve patriarchs came along. And then the famine. And then they all went to Egypt. And it was in Egypt that they multiplied and they spread and they became their own people. They were forged in the furnace of bondage and slavery to an ungodly people. But it was all in accordance with God's plan. They would cry out to God and God would send the first of many deliverances their way. And so He did. Up came Moses, raised in Pharaoh's house. And then Moses decided that he wanted to follow that path instead of the path of the Egyptians. And so, but it didn't work out the way that Moses thought it was going to work out. He had, he had to learn how to do things God's way. And so off into exile in the wilderness for 40 years running for his life because he had murdered a man in Egypt. And then, then he comes back to deliver the Jews. And he delivers them. And there were all the plagues that were there. It was God's deliverance, yes. But it was by the hand of Moses, depending on how you look at it. And so all the plagues befell the Egyptians that befell them. And so they cast the Israelites out. They weren't Israelites yet. They were the children of Israel as far as the person, yes, in their lineage, but they didn't have their own country yet. They cast them out and then chased after them. You'll talk about being double-minded, right? And then chased after them. And then deliverance after deliverance. Pharaoh's army was drowned in the Red Sea and then that was it. And then it was the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire and then 40 years or so in the wilderness until they were able to enter into the promised land. Okay, now where were we going with all of that? Well, that was their birth. And then God was their king until the days of Samuel when they said, give us a king like all the other nations. And we remember that message from just the last few weeks. There were a few messages, a couple messages that came out of that. Give us a king like all the other nations. Okay, so God gave him a king. He gave him Saul. And that didn't work out so great. But then he gave him David. 
and then after that, and then all throughout their history, from the, during the time of the judges, they still had a king. He was God. But then after that, it was Saul, and then the lineage of kings that came from David, and these other people, all the way down until Babylon came and took them into captivity. And they didn't have a king anymore. They didn't have a king anymore. And they were scattered abroad, 70 years in exile, 70 years in captivity, scattered all across the Babylonian Empire. And among them, only a few thousand came back after that, after that seven decade or so period of time. After the captivity was accomplished, only a few thousand of them came back. Most of the others had just adapted. They had just melded in, assimilated into, their, into, the, into the countries and the regions of that empire into which they had been born. And only a few thousand came back. Well, okay, that, that few thousand came back. But during that time of kings and prophets, they had always contended for an earthly kingdom. The patch of ground upon which they were living, all 12 tribes. They contended for that kingdom. Generation after generation against oppressor after oppressor, enemy after enemy. And there was a list of them. All the nations round about them. And occasionally it was peaceful, but then a lot of times it became hostile. And it wasn't just the Philistines. It was the Midianites and, and, and a whole battery of other ones. But they contended for that earthly kingdom, an earthly crown, with a king and a palace and a throne and all of that. All of the glories that pertain to natural kingdoms here on the earth. But then... Here comes John saying the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Not the throne of David. Not that palace that I don't even know if it still existed by that time. Maybe it did and Herod was living in it. I don't know if Herod had his own place by then. Okay, Not this, not this place of bricks and sticks and dirt and heat. It wasn't a place of this natural realm. He said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so John's disciples were the very first disciples that were contending for a heavenly kingdom. And so what he said here was, and from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. And we carry that same tradition. We carry that same tradition because you get your eyes set on something. You get your heart and your affections and your priorities fixed on something, on something uh, obsessively enough. You're like a neurotic. You really are. You're, you're a neurotic individual that can't think or sleep or rest or have peace of mind at all until you have achieved or attained that goal after which you are. You know what I'm saying? You've known people like that. You see that usually among really young folks, but sometimes you, meet, sometimes you, you, you find it among older people as well. They're obsessed about one thing. Well, people are like that with anything that they begin to obsess over. You get your mind fixed on something. And would to God that we all had our minds fixed on the kingdom the same way that John's disciples had. Now, I know that the, John's disciples weren't the same as Jesus' disciples. Well, many of them moved over as well they needed to, okay? But as far as Christ's disciples after his resurrection and his return to the Father. Okay, because the disciples of John were not born again because Jesus had not yet died. They weren't saved men. Okay, but they were the first among the, the Old Testament righteous, if you will. They were the first among the Old Testament righteous to fix their hearts upon a heavenly kingdom. And not just the natural kingdom of Israel. Are we seeing where this is going? So this is kind of 
putting John's ministry in its right place in our minds. And it's, it's making it more than just a, uh, an afterthought or a blip on the radar of history or as just a quick transitional thing between the Sadducees and Pharisees and then Jesus' ministry of truth. There was more to it than that. And it's worthy of our appreciation, if nothing else, from a historical viewpoint. Because aren't we contending for the same kingdom? Aren't we? I'm not talking about fighting to earn it. I'm talking about fighting to keep it. And there's a world of difference right there. There's an eternity of difference right there. There are plenty of people out there shackled and deceived under the bondage of cults that are out there that are working hard to earn a place at the table which we've been given a place at by merit of Jesus and who He is and what He did. They're working hard for it. They're trying to earn it. They're very much of that mind. And I remember hearing hearing an account of a couple of Mormons that had gone by. They'd gone by a person's house. The person happened to be a born-again Christian, a genuine born-again Christian. Not going to get too far with those folks, okay, if you're trying to suck them into a cult, okay? But they had gone by this, this Christian's house and they were talking to him and trying to get, get him interested in what they were doing. And the, and the Christian was doing a good thing. He was witnessing right back to them. He was witnessing right back to them. And a lot of times that's a waste of time. But sometimes, sometimes it needs to be done. Because those are precious souls also, aren't they? And we're under orders to pray for them. Because they're, they are bound and shackled under, under, uh, uh, under chains of deceit and a spirit of error and all of that. And so they're really in a bad way. Well, they're nice moral people. Well, sure, okay. But there are lots of nice moral people that have died lost without Christ. Haven't there? That's, that's the hard truth. That's the hard truth of the human condition. But he was, he was witnessing right back to them and in a way that, that accomplished a rare feat. It really got one of these two guys mad. And it's hard to get a Mormon angry. I wish it was the same way with Christians. It's supposed to be. We're supposed to forget how to get angry. We're supposed to be slow to wrath. Amen? We're commanded to be that way. We're supposed to be slow to wrath. But one of these guys finally just got really bent out of shape. And he said something like this. He said, you Christians are all the same. He said, you Christians are all the same. He said, you think that it's just all grace. And he said, if you're going to get to heaven, it's going to cost you something. And really, he was right. But not in the way that he was thinking. Because that Mormon was trying to work his way there. He was trying to earn his way there and work his way there through good works and all of that. And good works are an important part of the Christian life. But good works are the result of a changed, redeemed heart. They are not the vehicle to that redemption. And I know this, this, sounds, this, this, this is elementary stuff, but it's worth mentioning here. It's worth mentioning here. The place at the Lord's table, our place at the Lord's table was bought for us by the blood of Jesus Christ, hanging on that cross, dying for our sins. We could not earn it ourselves. If we lived 10,000 years, we could not earn it for ourselves because it is not bought with works. It's not our works. And we're told that over and over again. We're told over in Romans that our own righteousness, our own efforts at being righteous, are filthy rags 
unto the Lord. And the context of that is particularly revolting, and I'm not going to go there, okay? It's, he's not just talking about, you know, the rag that you used when you were checking your oil. He's talking about a different kind of rag, and we're going to leave it at that, okay? He's, we could not earn our own place there. It was bought for us by the blood of Christ. It came into our possession by our acceptance of that blood. Amen? But so many other groups, of which that one young man was one, have it backwards, as they often do, and they're trying to earn their own place there by their own efforts. If I do enough good works, it's going to outweigh my bad works, and God's going to judge me good enough, and he's going to give me a place at that table. Brother, that is a losing fight. That is a wasted life. It really is, because it has never worked that way. Not throughout the history of the human race has it worked that way. Even under the law of Moses, that wasn't really about works. Even it was still about faith. It was just, that's how they demonstrated their faith. They demonstrated their faith and their trust in an almighty God by obeying the law of Moses and fulfilling what commandments they could and then making atonement when they blew it. Okay? But under this New Testament age, under this new covenant under which we live, this new covenant agreement with the Lord, with our God, it's by grace. It doesn't get us off the hooks from doing right, but it's no longer an issue of trying to earn our way there. How many of you ever faced a school bully? Ever? Some jerk that was always messing with you and trying to take something that you had Whatever the case may be. Well, isn't that like the devil? You have something. It's already in your possession. It was already yours. Your lunch money was already yours. It was already in your possession. It was already in your pocket. It already had a purpose. But you had that school bully that was always out to take it from you. Right? And if it succeeded, well, you lost. Maybe you could get it back. Maybe you couldn't. All right? Well, we have a place in the kingdom of heaven. We have a crown reserved for us. That was a Sunday morning's message, wasn't it? Keep that. Keep that which thou hast. Hold that fast which thou hast. Okay? We have all those things. We are already seated in heavenly places with Christ. There's already a place at the Lord's table reserved for us. Jesus told his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. And so you can even picture it like a mansion, right? Picture the nicest home you ever wanted to live in. However overblown and gaudy or small, simple and humble or whatever, whatsoever your little heart desires, okay? Picture that and picture a sign in the yard, if it has a yard, funk with your name on it. Reserved for, it's got your name on it. It says reserved for. It's already yours. You don't have to earn it. Jesus earned it for you. But there's always a bully trying to take it, isn't there? The thief who comes but for to steal and to kill and destroy. Oh, I love how this is tying in. I wasn't even planning on this. I just love it when that works out. It's perfect. It's such wonderful confirmation. There's always a thief trying to take what you have in God. He's always trying to take your blessings, whether they're your blessings here on earth, by provoking you to give them up. Okay, usually by some bad decision or, or burst of ill temper or, or something along those lines. There's always a thief trying to come and take what you have to take your crown. 
to take your seat at the Lord's table away from you. Not so that someone else can have it, but so that you just can't. Okay, all right, so what do we do? He says from the days of John the Baptist until now, okay? And we could even say, we could say, from the days of John the Baptist until right now. This third day of July, 2018, year of our Lord, if you will, from John the Baptist's time until this hour that we're sitting right here in the house of God. He said the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. Have you ever been spiritually violent? Or are you just the poor sucker that can't stand up to the bully? Here's the good news tonight. You can. You always could. God's given you the ability. And the Holy Ghost gives you the strength to stand up to the bully and say, no, you can't have my crown. You can't have my seat at the Lord's table. You can't take my salvation from me. And you're not going to scare me into giving it to you. When's the last time you served the devil notice? When he was coming up against you about anything at all in your life. When's the last time you did, when's the last time you did like, like Pastor Gandhi did all those years ago? And he was in some battle, devil just beating on him in his mind, so to speak. And he was driving his car, and he was in his car alone. And he just pretended that the devil was sitting there next to him. And he said, get out of my car. No, wait. He stomped his foot on the gas until he was going really fast. and said, now get out. You get it? Get it? When's the last time you did something like that? I'm not saying go speed and do that. I'm just using that as an example. But when's the last time you said, you know what, devil? The Lord rebuke you. I'm not yours. I'm not your punching bag. And I'm not your whipping boy. And you have no power over me. You have none over me. You lost all your power when I repented and gave up my old life and put my life in the hands of God. So why don't you go beat on one of your own kids? I'm not yours anymore. And set your face like a flint and contend for the faith like the apostle told us to do. Sometimes you just got to put your spiritual boxing gloves on and fight back. Amen? Verse 13. For all, all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if ye, receive, if ye will receive it, this is Elias, which was for to come. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And this is actually what we're going to finish up with tonight is this part right here. Because there's a prophecy that I don't want to skip. He said... This is Elias. Well, Elias was a different... Remember, the New Testament was translated mostly out of, I believe, Greek. It was translated mostly out of Greek. Was there any Aramaic that the New Testament was translated out of to? It was all Greek, wasn't it? It's all Greek to us. Well, so Elias was Greek for Elijah. Now, we know who Elijah was. Elijah was an Old Testament prophet. He was a mighty uh, mighty in faith, and God worked many miracles by his hands. Elisha, twice as many, yes, but, but Elijah was a mighty man and with real courage. He's the one who stood up to the 400 prophets of Baal, wasn't it? 
He's the one who stood up to the prophets of Baal, built that altar, soaked the altar with water, soaked the sacrifice of water, challenged all the prophets of Baal and said, all right, let's see. Let's see whose God answers, yours or mine. And the real God answered and burned up all that wet wood, burned up the wet sacrifice, boiled all the water out of the trench around it. I mean, he really, he really pulled out all the stops, all right? Well, that was the prophet Elijah was there. Well, how did Elijah die? Trick question. He didn't. You read about that. Go back to your Old Testament. Reread it again. Elijah didn't die. Elijah was taken up directly into heaven in body by, was it a fiery chariot? And so, where is he today? Well, he's right where he was when he was taken up. But there was a prophecy that went forth over in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. But he, there was a prophecy that went forth that he was going to come back. But this wasn't a reincarnation, okay? And that's where you have to look at it. He says, speaking of John the Baptist, he says, and if ye will receive it, he said that because he knew that some of them might not be willing to believe that this was Elijah returned to them, okay? He said, if ye will receive it, this is Elias or Elijah, which was for to come. Well, obviously, it wasn't a reincarnation of Elijah for two, for two reasons. One, he has his own name, John the Baptist, and he was born, okay? And it obviously wasn't the, uh, wasn't the literal return of Elijah because Elijah had not died, and this John was born of a woman, wasn't he? But he came in the spirit of Elijah. He came in the spirit of Elijah, bearing the message that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And so it was a fulfilling of that. It wasn't a reincarnation because Elijah had not died. But he came in the same spirit, bearing the same kind of message and bearing some hope. Thank you for listening to Come to the Table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY giving.